0: Joining us. And I'm very excited to tell you about our narrative medicine balance this year. But first, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Sunny Birgua. I am a bone healer and a graduate of the narrative medicine class of 2016. And it is an honor to be here today to take on the veins from um, Deepu who who is here doing this wonderful job, very gracefully, the last couple of years. So it's an honor to be here tonight. I would love to talk about the introduction of this evening and why we're here. Narrative and Rounds of the year is honored, I'm honored to step in this role, and we are here to listen to, why are we here? This is something that I wonder if you are all here for the same reasons, but it doesn't matter if you're not. For those of you joining us for the first time, Narrative Medicine Rounds is a monthly event held on the first Wednesday of each month during the academic year. Hosted by the Division of Narrative Medicine and the Department of Medical Humanities and Ethics at Columbia University, Irvine Medical Center. This is an opportunity for all of us to connect with authors, artists, creative thought leaders, and a way for us to join narrative and narrative medicine in ways that we might not have thought about before. It's a relationship between narrative and narrative medicine. So our upcoming rounds that I would like to share with you all. For the October rounds is Ethics of Care, Restorative Justice and Healing in Toni Morrison's Late Fiction. A talk by Farah Jameson Griffin, the inaugural chair of African American and African Diasporic Studies Department and the director of the Institute for Research in African American Studies at Columbia University. Wednesday, this is happening Wednesday, October 2nd. And for November, just to give you a list of what's happening the rest of the year, November, we're having Hypochondria and History, Searching for Story, a talk by novelist Deborah Levy. And that's Wednesday, November 6th. And for December, writing a biography, The Promise and Peril of Telling Someone Else's Life, a talk by Professor Morris Spiegel. They are all located here, so we hope to see you then. So, this evening, we are here to continue a great tradition with the first narrative medicine rounds of the academic year. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Susan Goldberg and Eve Enthler. It is an honor to introduce you tonight to Dr. Susan Goldberg, but before I do so, I'd like to, I'd like, I think we're all going to be able to hear some of the uh, words of the book that we're here to discuss this evening. No, that's later. Oh, well, that's later. Okay. My apologies. Well, I will then introduce me Suzanne. Um, before I introduce Suzanne, actually, I would like to welcome um, in the audience, I believe, LaShawn Rivera who is the Executive Director of Sexual Violence Response and Rape Crisis, uh, Anti-Violence Support Center here at Columbia University. And she's here to answer any questions and provide information for anyone who would like to speak to her after uh, the balance this evening. So, Suzanne, Dr. Suzanne Goldberg. Executive Vice President of University of Life and Director, Center for the Gender and Sexuality Law and Sexuality and Gender Law Clinic. Just to give you a little bit more on Dr. Goldberg. One of the country's foremost experts on gender and sexuality law and leading advocate for the LGBTQ community. Serves as a Hubert and Doris Weissler, clinical professor of law, she also leads the Law school Center for Gender and Sexuality Law and its Sexuality and Gender Law Clinic. Dr. Goldberg joined the Law School's full-time faculty in 2006. She previously served on the faculty's Rutgers School of Law, Newark Fordham Law School. In private practice, Goldberg served as a senior staff attorney at Namada Legal, the country's first legal organization focused on achieving full equality for lesbian and gay people. During her time at Nevada, she served as co-counsel for the defendants in the landmark U.S. Supreme court case Lawrence versus Texas. We are here very happily so to welcome you, Dr. Susan Goldberg. Thank you.
1: Thank
2: you so much, and I'm really so glad to Eve here, it's a tremendous honor to be speaking at the first rounds of Narrative Medicine this year, and you have a wonderful, full schedule in the year ahead, so hopefully the conversation that Eve and I will have shortly will lay some of the foundation for many of the issues and ideas that we'll be discussing throughout the year. Uh, So it's a special privilege to introduce someone who needs no introduction. Eve Ensler is a rock star and not only because of her cool silver jacket and shoes that she's here tonight, uh, but she's a rock star in the world of social justice advocates, of feminist visionaries, of people who help change people's experiences of themselves and of each other in the way that she has shared of her own experiences, in the way that she has brought to all of us her ideas, her vision, her creativity, and in the way that bringing those experiences together has generated communities upon communities upon communities. In the academic world, in addition to being a rock star, uh, (laughs) Eve is also a Tony Award-winning playwright, activist, author of the Obie Award-winning Vagina Monologues, and many, many powerful plays, books, more books than I realized, actually, many, many articles. She has also contributed to films and really countless other things. So in the academic world, where we are very familiar with long CVs and lots of accomplishments and extensive biographies, one of the things that I most appreciate about Eve's formal bio is the line with which it ends. It says, a survivor of violence, Eve has dedicated her life to ending violence against women and girls. Simply put, and yet at the same time everything. So you have almost certainly heard of, or been to, or participated in, or spoken at Vagina Monologues. Is that fair to say that everybody at least has heard of the Vagina Monologues, or most everybody? Yeah. And so in that, that, that experience alone, just being aware of the Vagina Monologues, makes us, each and all of us, a member of a broader community that Eve has helped create. So consider the community that we're all part of. The play has been published in over 48 languages. It has been performed in over 4, 140 countries. It is also performed regularly at the under, among the undergraduate schools at Columbia and Barnard here. It has, and then and you really think, stop and really think about the tens of thousands of people who have spoken, listened to and participated in monologue after monologue of women, cis and trans, young and old, speaking about their vaginas. And also taking that foundation and creating monologues of their own, which Eve and the community of activists has helped to generate, have spread throughout the world. As I was rereading the play in anticipation of our conversation today, I felt all of those people populating my experience of of each monologue, from college campuses to refugee camps, from here at Columbia in the middle of Manhattan to every imaginable place in the world. And when I thought about it, I thought, there's not an obvious common thread necessarily from one place to another where the monologues have been performed. But at the same time, what comes through, the, the commonalities that can't help but come through are the pride and the pleasure, the shame and the pain and the pervasiveness of gender-based violence that affects so, so many people. And since you know about the vagina monologues, you might also know about two global activist movements that grew out of those monologues, uh, which are now, uh, were, were written, first performed in 1996 and as the New York Times described them, one of the truly most transformative pieces of theater there has been in in many decades. Um, So two of these movements, global movements, that have grown out of these work, one is B-Day, which has raised over $100 million to end violence against all women and girls, and one billion Rising, the largest global mass action uh, to end gender-based violence in over 200 countries. He is also co-founder of City of Joy, a center for women survivors of violence, which is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I hope we'll get a chance to hear a little bit about it. Of special interest this evening is Eve's new book, The Apology, that we'll turn to in a moment. And I also want to mention to you, because I hope we'll get there if we have time, an older book, a 2013 memoir, in which she shares her experience of being a patient, of being treated for uterine cancer, and the linkages of that experience, as she has described it, with the devastation of the Earth and the resilience of humanity. Now, as we turn to our conversation, I do want to acknowledge that the material we are dealing with is challenging, that some of the material may be especially difficult for survivors of domestic— excuse me, survivors of sexual violence. Um, I think LaShawn Rivera already raised her hand. Did you do that, LaShawn? Are you hear somebody here from sexual violence response? Well I, I do see Dr. Melanie Burgess, who's the head of Columbia Health who's here. Um, and I don't think it's Margie Fisher here. Margie Fisher, who can you just stand up Margie Margie is Columbia's Title IX coordinator and she's also available now and afterwards to talk with anybody here about Columbia's resources and many different ways in which anybody who is here and a member of our community can seek and obtain ongoing support throughout their time in Columbia. So Eve, we're thrilled for you to be here. I'm personally thrilled to be in conversation with you. We're thrilled to have you at Columbia and at narrative medicine Rounds. So why don't you come join me? And as you're coming on up, I'll just say uh, two other things. Um, That it's a special thing to have this conversation at the university. Uh, Maybe I'll come over and join you as I'm talking about this. university. There's, there's something about a setting of a university conversation that's just different, I think, from a lot of the other places in which we have conversations. The point of being here, that what we do at Columbia and what universities in general try to do is to push the balance of our knowledge. And the way we do that, essential and fundamental to doing that, is listening deeply to what others have created and what others have taught and what others are trying to teach us. And with that deep listening, we can then expand and build and engage together in a transformative process that pushes even further this bounds of our knowledge. And that, of course, that listening, that deep listening and learning and honoring what we learn from others is directly part of Columbia's narrative medicine division within the Columbia Department of Medical Humanities. So a quick word about format, and then I'll turn it over to you. Uh, In the spirit of rounds, we are going to hold a conversation, learning from each other, and learning with everybody here. We'll speak for about 40 minutes, and we'll talk first about her book, The Apology, we'll hear a little bit from the book, and then we will have a conversation, and then there will be an opportunity for anybody here to raise questions. I think there will be cards distributed to you, and I will do my best to shuffle
1: among them and ask
2: as many questions as I can. Um, So... Really
1: thrilled to have you here. Thank you. And I'm thrilled you. to be here. Hello. As I said to Eve when we were Hello. On the- is it on? Okay. Hello. Again? Okay. Hello? Hmm. okay. I think it's now I think it's on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So, as I said to Eve when we were talking before, you know,
2: I, as all of us do here at Columbia, I, I read a lot, a lot, a lot, of books, articles, of you know, many, many footnotes, some few footnotes, others. Um, but it's just not that often that I read something that really rocks my world, that rocks the way I think about the world and the possibilities for who we are and how we might change and how we might transform our society. And that, I have to say, was my experience reading the apology and hearing you talk about it. So if I could just ask you to open up for us and, and tell us what, what is the apology, how did you come to create it,
1: and, and
2: help us understand, like, give us a foundation for, for what you're doing
1: with this book. Thank you, and thank you for this, the beautiful introduction. It's really moving and I'm thrilled to be here with everybody. Um, at the beginning of school. I, I really described it. I was coming here today and I was thinking, it's the beginning um, of what we do not know. Every day in America is like the beginning of what? Uh, or the end of what? Um, but um, I'm, I'm very thrilled to be here. Um, and I really love the idea of narrative medicine. It speaks so deeply to me because I really see the interconnection of stories and medicine and stories and the body and the body as storyteller. So I was really excited to, to accept this invitation. Um, the apology is grew um, out of many things, I think. All books come from so many seeds and, and so many different little gardens inside yourself that all kind of collided at a certain point. But I think there were two primary things. Um, one, I, I've been working um, really all my conscious life to think of a way to end violence against women and girls, all women and girls. Um, mainly because I'm the outcome of violence, I'm the consequence of violence. I was brought up in um, the environment of violence. And for many years, um, I felt that had set me on a trajectory uh, not of my own making. You know, it took me many years to catch up with that trajectory and, and begin to take my life in another direction. And I think, um, When I became conscious enough and came out of the days of self-destruction where I was trying to annihilate myself through self-violence, I was saved by writing and through activism. And I have worked all of my conscious life to think, how are we going to stop this disease, this plague of violence in general, but particularly towards all women? Because I believe that women are fundamental to the life going on on this planet. And I feel in our movements, look, we have a 70-year-old movement in this country that began with African-American women who were fighting violence that was being inflicted upon them by white slave owners that goes through to now. I have been blessed to be part of that movement and to spend 20 some odd years working 12 hours a day in that movement. And then with the next escalation of Me Too, which has been you know, incredibly energizing, but I feel we're stuck. I feel we're stuck. We've told our stories. We've opened shelters. We've done hotlines. We've, we've bared our souls. We've ripped ourselves apart. And yet, I just read, I just got a text on the way here from my sisters in Paris that femicide is so huge in France that a hundred women have already been beaten this year. To death. To death. So what is not changing? What is not changing? And I think... That question has been just pushing and pushing and pushing at me. And the second piece of it is that as a survivor of enormous violence and, and sexual abuse as a child, I think I waited so much of my childhood for my own father to one day wake up and say, I'm sorry. I screwed up. Look who I am. Look, look what I was doing. What was I thinking? And, and that did not happen. And my father died 31 years ago. And the child part of me, that little girl part of me, was still waiting for that apology. It's it's like, I think one of the things that happens when you're victimized, when you're marginalized, when you're degraded in any way, there is a part of you that is always secretly waiting for someone to get it and, and, and get your pain and get what you've been through. So I was in the Congo, which is one of my favorite places in the world, and I've spent years and years there, because I was invited there by Dr. Denis McWage, who actually won the Nobel Peace Prize last year, um, fighting off the sexual, um, horrible sexual terrorism that has gone on in the DRC around a war that is an economic war where people from outside the country have been pillaging and fighting for minerals, particularly Coltane, which goes into our cell phones. And that war has wreaked havoc and violence on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women's bodies who are really um, the landscape on which that war is fought. So when I was in Congo, um, everything always happens for me in the Congo. I have my biggest ideas, I have my most creative ideas because the people in the Congo, the environment of the Congo is the most beautiful, the most magical, the most energetic place. and I suddenly sat down and thought, men need to apologize. We need to create a pathway for men to apologize, for something, for atonement, for reparations. And um, I started to think, well, oh, they're not going to do it on their own um, because they don't usually do things on their own. They need plotting and provocation. And, um, and that's not a negative, it's just a fact. And, um... And, um So I thought to myself, what if I wrote the apology to myself in my father's voice that I had always wanted? And what if I entered him, and I climbed into his soul and let him climb into me, and I wrote all the things I needed to hear, all the things I needed him to say, and maybe, A, I would heal myself, and B, maybe it might be a blueprint for what other men could do. And so I set out to do that. Um, and it was the hardest, the most arduous, the most revelatory, um, and in the end the most liberatory experience I've ever had. And, um, and I want to say, um, we're going to play a little from the book because um, I, I made a vow that I would never read the book, that only men would read the book. And I have kept to it, except for the introduction. Um, I actually want to read, if I can, the introduction. Because I think it will um, set something up. Um, Can you read the dedication? Yes. Because I think there are women here who will understand this. The dedication is for every woman still waiting for an apology. Anyone here relate to that? Yeah. A few people? Um, So this is the introduction. I am done waiting. My father is long dead. He will never say the words to me. He will not make the apology. So it must be imagined. For it is in our imagination that we dream across boundaries, deepen the narrative, and design alternative outcomes. This letter is an invocation of calling up. I've tried to allow my father to speak to me as he would speak. Although I have written the words I needed my father to say to me, I had to make space for him to come through me. There is so much about him, his history, that he never shared for me, as I had, so I've had to conjure much of that as well. This letter is my attempt to endow my father with the will and the words to cross the border and speak the language of apology so that I can finally be free. And with that, I'm going to play you. Um, it's done in a voice of Eduardo Ballerini, who's a wonderful actor and audio performer, um, who did a beautiful job with this and actually broke down in the middle of it, sobbing, um, and had a really profound experience. Um, and I'm going to re- a little bit from the beginning, a little bit from the middle, and a little bit from the end. How very strange to
3: be writing you. And I write to you from the grave. Of the past? Of the future? Am I writing as you? Or as you would like me to be? Or as I really am beneath my own limited understanding? And does it matter? Am I writing in a language I never spoke or understood, but you have created inside both of our minds to bridge the gaps, the failures to connect? Maybe I am writing as I truly am, as you have freed me by your witness. Or I'm not writing this at all, but simply being used as a vehicle to fulfill your own needs and version of things. You always wrote me letters. I found that peculiar and strangely moving. We lived in the same house, but you were writing to me. Your little girl handwriting attempting straight lines, but wandering all over the page. It was as if you were trying to make contact with some aspect of me. The you could not find in the heated moments of our conflict, as if you had trying through poetry to appeal to a secret self that I had once made available to you. Usually you wrote apology letters. So fitting that you would now want an apology letter from me. You were always apologizing, begging for forgiveness. I have reduced you to a daily degrading mantra of I'm sorry. This apology requires time. It could not be rushed. Fortunately, I have had practice here endlessly reliving and rehashing my crimes, mentally reenacting the details. I know you have said that an apology must be thorough and can only be trusted in its veracity and dedication to details. I have done my best. I have followed your very strict guidelines. Recognize what I have done as a crime. Face how deeply my actions and violations have impacted and devastated. See you as a human being. Attempt to experience or feel what it felt like inside you. Feel profound remorse and regret over my actions. And finally, take responsibility for my actions by doing extensive work to understand what made me do what I did. I will at least go back in this letter to locate the roots of my behavior. I will be as honest as a formerly disingenuous person can be. I will attempt to proceed with neither defensiveness nor self-pity. As I understand, neither will further clarify nor resolve. I would find myself in your room at some twilight hour. I only really felt alive between the daylight and darkness, in that crepuscular realm where dream and memory are indecipherable. That star controlled you. Those albums where others in the house were lost in sleep and you were in a trance, separated from your body. I would find myself sitting on your bed, somehow carried there by the shadow. You would pretend to be asleep, as if what was happening was not happening. You desperately wanted it and me to go away. I didn't go away. I never spoke, never uttered a sound. The silence was my power. Words would break the spell, make it real and ugly of what it was. What kind of bastard have I been? What kind of destruction have I brought? I have lied. I lied to myself and you. I cursed your future of love. At five, I took your body. You didn't give it to me. I contaminated your sweetness. I ripped the protective golden gates from your garden. I betrayed your trust. I rearranged your sexual chemistry and the basis of your desire. Wrongness and excitement or forever fused together. I made my stain. I left my stinking mark. I infected you. By invading and overwhelming your body, I killed your yearning so early. You did not and could not give me permission. There was no consent. You did not seduce me with your criminal pedicons. You were simply being an adorable child. I overstimulated your five-year-old body. And planted the seeds of intensity and thrill. You would push yourself too far. Take on jump off bridges, drive a hundred miles an hour. I robbed you of the ordinary. I destroyed your notion of family. I forced you to betray your mother. You lived in perpetual self-hatred and guilt. I created hierarchy, distrust, and violent competition between you and your siblings. None of you would recover from. I robbed you of agency over your body. You didn't make any decisions. You didn't say yes. That was my projection, in order to satisfy my needs. You were five years old. I was 52. You had no sovereignty. I exploited and abused you. I took your body. It was no longer yours. I rendered you passive. You compulsively gave it to whoever wanted it because I taught you you should. I forced you out of your body. And because of a dislocated and numb You were unable to protect yourself I compromised your safety And ability to defend yourself I made it so that rape became what turned you on I eviscerated your Necessary boundaries so you never Knew what was yours and when to say no Or how to say stop I tore the delicate walls Of your vagina And made it vulnerable to disease and infection Your body didn't and couldn't say yes. This was a convenient lie I told myself. You didn't know it was sex. I took what I needed by convincing myself you needed it too. I exploited your adoration. I forced you into secrecy, to lie to your mother, to develop a dual life. This splits you in two. I made you feel like a whore. I made you feel you were never worthy of legitimate love. I made intimacy claustrophobic. I left my poison in you. I destroyed your memory by making you want to forget everything. This impacted your intelligence and ability to contain facts and take tests. I stole your innocence. I dimmed your life force and made you feel your sexuality was the cause of bad things. I used your being and body to serve myself. I did all this. Eve, let me say these words. I am sorry. I am sorry. Let me sit here at the final hour. Let me get it right this time. Let me be staggered by your tenderness. Let me risk fragility. Let me be rendered vulnerable. Let me be lost. Let me be still. Let me not occupy purpose. Let me not conquer or destroy. Let me bathe in the rapture. Let me be the Father. Let me be the Father who mirrors your kind-heartedness back to you. Let me lay no claims. Let me bear witness and not invade. Eve. I free you from the covenant, I revoke the lie, I lift the curse, all then,
1: be gone. That was a little section. (laughs) Um, It's near the end, so... um...
2: I, I said before that it rocked my world to hear what an apology would sound like for this kind of grievous, almost ineffable in the worst way harm. And I think a lot of people have imagined what, imagined in a loose way, an amorphous way, what an apology might sound like. But I can't think of anywhere, any place. Where those words have been put out on a page and shared with so many people to see what that could look like. Now, there are so many questions I want to ask you. Um, we're in narrative medicine round, so I feel the place we should start is to ask you if you could just talk about your experience of writing the book. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about your experience of listening to it read while you're sitting in front of a Large audience of people, since often, I think as a, a patient, occasionally we're speaking one-on-one with a doctor, but especially in a medical center setting where it's educational, patients too are often speaking in front of multiple people
1: whom they do not know, and
2: so there are those strands of the experience too.
1: It's always different when I listen to it in front of people. It really depends on the energy in the room, you know? But something happened um, a couple of days ago that was really emotional to me. Um, I got, I've been getting all these incredible letters and emails from people who are reading the book, both men and women, really deep, um, thoughtful, moving emotional emails of people who have gone and written apologies, who have written themselves apologies. But the other day I got a letter from a person who knew my father and, That really, whoa, it it was really a moment because my father um, has been gone a long time and he was a business acquaintance of my father and he, and and at first I went, it's just that feeling that I've exposed my father, you know? People who knew him now know this about my father and there's that moment of like, oh my God, I've done that, you know? And then the second thing was, Oh, my God, I've done that. Oh, my God, I've done that. It is out, and it is real, and it is true. And our, our tendency to protect predators, to protect racists, to protect oppressors, um, to not embarrass them, to not ruin their careers, and to not destroy their professional status, this is, is something we have to really work to overcome. It's part of our... Um, It's part of of the violence. And so what he went on to say is, your father was an incredible businessman, but in fact, he never in all the years I knew him mentioned his children once and never invited us to do anything socially. And he then said, I really want your life from this point forward to be full of love. And it was so... um, It was so beautiful. He was 89 years old. He'd sat down. He'd read the whole book. And he spent the time to write me that. And it really felt like it was something from the the spheres. Um, I think writing this book taught me something so profound. Something I've always known, but I now know it experientially. And I think it's really important when you hear stories to think this and remember this. We all have each other inside us. Every story in this world somewhere lives inside us, whether we're conscious of it or not. Whether we hear it in the streets, where we pick it up in a newspaper, where we fill it from the ethers, we have each other inside of us and we hold each other's legacies and ancestries and pain. And the person I had very much inside me was my father. Anybody who has ever been oppressed or abused physically or particularly physically, that person enters you, particularly if you're sexually abused. They enter you. They lay their imprint inside you. They, they inhabit your DNA and your cells. They are embedded there. And in some ways, we know the story of our oppressors better than we know our own story. James Baldwin always talked about black people knowing the story of white people far better than white people knew black people. Um, when I was in Palestine, Palestinians could tell me the stories of Israelis, everything about them, where Israelis knew very little about Palestinians. I think as survivors of violence and sexual violence, um, we know everything about our perpetrators, particularly if we live with them, because we were always on guard learning how to defend ourselves. So we know their moves and we know their moods and we know when they're, they're tiptoe, when they're loud, what that's gonna mean. And what I discovered is that I had to speak into the father that lived in me and I, let, I needed to let him speak to me. And that was not as hard when I was talking about all the horrible things my father had done. You know, I was familiar with that, I was versed in that. But when I invited my father to tell me about his childhood, to tell me about his pain, to tell me about where he had come from and how he had been trained in the story of toxic masculine patriarchy to become the person he became, that was hard. To feel my father's pain, to open myself to my father's fragility and tenderness and where he got broken and where he got ruined. But it also, in feeling for my father, allowed me to open those places in myself that I had closed. And it was grief, it was agony, it was it was tenderness Um, and I think one of the amazing things that started to happen is once his voice arrived as I was writing he kind of took over I felt almost in a trance I don't know vocabulary that he knew I don't have the authorial voice in the book that he has he would I would sometimes be woken by him at four in the morning and he would say go to your office I have something to tell you and he would tell me a story And I would feel like, okay, I'll go. And I would write the story, I would never have heard that story from him, but it felt like he was telling me that story. Um, And what it made me really understand, and I think this is so profound, is that if we open ourselves to other people, we will find them in ourselves, and we will find ourselves in them. And that's the dangerous work of both listening to stories and communicating stories is where do you find yourself in that story and where do, you, where do you close yourself off from that story? Where do you go like this to the story and where do you say, I'm gonna go into that story and find out where I live, where my heart is, where I am charged in that story.
2: So I, you've talked about the experience of feeling healed in some ways. I don't know that that's always the word you use, but the, 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 and then you feel like a new person Having, I, mean, I remember I, I listened to a podcast with you where you talked about this You know, it's sort of you are know, like driving a new car. You're just you're in a new world, like almost almost like a kid again in a certain way. And I wonder if you could talk, say a little bit about how long it took you to write to write the book because I remember hearing you say you were on your own. You were not. You didn't have people around for this experience. And at what point, in what ways
1: did you start to feel different? Well, I want to say something about the book, too. It's not a prescription, it's an offering. I know there are many survivors who have no interest in apologies, or making apologies, or hearing apologies. All blessings. Um, I got to a point in my life where I was holding a certain amount of anger, and I could hear the way I was talking about men, and I didn't like the way I was talking about men. It felt monolithic. It felt general. And I don't like that. And I also realized that I was at a stage in my own growth that I wanted, you know, there's a line in the the book where he says, his mother used to say, anger is a drink you mix for your friend, but you drink yourself. And I feel like that's what was happening to me. My own rage at at men was poisoning me. And um, I think what happened, you know, look, I'm, I'm 66 years old, right? I've been working on getting this out of me, transforming this. It's like, how many ways can we do it, right? We can dance it out. We can do therapy. We can do groups. We can do activism. We can do, I mean, you know, there isn't anything I haven't tried to do, right, In, in the process of trying to recover my original self that is buried under a cavern or was buried under a cavern of violence. But I think what this experience did for me and and, I think if someone had said this to me we were talking about this you could do this when you were younger and they had offered this to me it would have been a wonderful thing. Um, What this experience did was it was thorough and it was experiential. It was experiential. I had to go into my father and let him into me and I had to go back to a point that I had cut off. And so... There were moments when I was curled up by the fire with my dog lying next to me, wailing. There were moments where I was just like, ah. But all along, I felt this feeling like this is right. I need to go back in. I need to go back through. I think sometimes we believe that whatever our greatest wound is, we need to leave it alone. That if we go back there, we'll die. If we go back there, we'll be destroyed. The opposite is true. You know, if we pull up our chair outside our wound, like let's say your wound is a mountain and you pull up your chair outside it, the mountain just rains down shit on you for eternity. But if you decide to go through the wound, it's like, you know, um, that I I, I can't even believe a Tom Cruise movie is coming up in my head, but (laughs) do you know that movie where they go through the, uh, what's that, the airplane, Air Force movie? Yes, where, there's that moment where they just break the sound barrier where they're just like that, that and then on the other side there's like clean sh- space that's what writing this book felt like it was like going through the wound and it was like and then and I have to tell you something's changed in me you know, I think one of the greatest um, disservices we do to all survivors of any kind of deep wounding is we tell them that they're broken for life that's the second rape. That's the second that's the second violence. What I've learned is it's just not true. It's just not true. We are we are people who have this ability to create new cells and new energetic membranes that can actually forge new territory inside ourselves. And that trauma is 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 flexible. It's not hard matter. It's not like it's not thick, it's not done. It's you can move through it. It's permeable. And so when I finished the book and my father or me or my me and my father said that last night, oh man, be gone. It was like Tinkerbell at the end of Peter Pan. It was just like, and I literally felt my father go. It was just like, and he has not been back. He has not been back. And I am not suffering from any of the things I suffered from when he was living embedded in my body anymore. So, that is to say, there was a lot of work leading up to that. Who knows what is the thing that leads to it? But I will tell you, this exercise of of inhabiting somebody to write to yourself what you need to hear is, is, it, it, it feels like a shamanistic experience in a way. Because you're literally going into something to pull out something that you need, that you know you need, that you can subconsciously direct, in order to heal yourself. And it gives you enormous agency over your past and over your future. So that has been, um, I don't know, I feel, I, I, I literally walk around some days and I wake up in the morning, I'm like, whose life is this? You know what I mean? Like, I just feel madly, in, and look, we are living in all-out nightmare zone. We all know that. We, we, I, I don't even know where we are I think we've entered a galaxy of insanity that is it, hard to fathom but I actually feel my, my vibration has raised up in the face of that I don't, feel, I don't feel under the spell of whatever this Trumpian disorder is You know, it, it is not dissimilar to my father it is not dissimilar to the pathology of my father and it is thick it is thick around us but we have the capacity to raise our vibration if we're willing to get it out of our bodies and i learned that. From this so I, I know we're, we're certainly closer at the time where I
2: should be receiving cards with questions and comments I being a law professor, we'll be happy to ask you questions <laughs> all night, um, but I do want to be sure to have, have some opportunity. We have oh, we do? Oh, okay. Great. And I'm going yeah. to ask you another question. Okay. Um, thank you so much for, for sharing this with us. And As we were talking about before, the, the, it's incredible how resonant the apology and your experience of it is with the work of narrative medicine the honoring of the story and the transformations that can take place both for the individual and the listener in the process of deeply, deeply listening. And It seems like you have know all dimensions of this in your experience. You now, You said um, you, you talk about healing and you've also talked about forgiveness and how you see those things as how you see those things in relation to each other or not in relation to each other. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that, because that, too, is so deeply connected. And I'll just add one question, which I know we're not going to get to, but it's a little bit related, right? There are so many terrible ways in which people can experience trauma. And some are immediately caused by another person, and others may be caused by people who have caused climate change, but ultimately it's a a devastating storm in the Bahamas. It is to, in, in an inanimate object that falls out of the sky, it, it, it's a disease that doesn't have exploitable origins. And so there's the question of you know when any of us wrestles with the, this kind of pain that has taken our lives in some measure from loss, How do we how to think about that and how to relate to it? And I think in some ways you're, what, what you have to say about healing and forgiveness to me says something
1: about the bigger question as well. Well, I I just want to say a a little something about City of Joy because it's connected to this Mm -hmm. question. City of Joy is this really remarkable place in Bukavu, Eastern Congo that I co-founded with Dr. McGwege and Christine Schuler-Desgriever. And it's a sanctuary and a revolutionary center. And I say those in one breath because that's the story we're telling. Um, It's the story of turning pain to power where women who have been um, radically, radically... Uh, sexually terrorized in the war come for six months they are loved, they have collective food therapy they are fed, they are nurtured they dance, they have theater, they learn their rights, they learn permaculture they make incredible things that, which they can then sell um, and they have a six month experience of radical transformation and um, Christine Mamasi, I call her um, gave them the exercise of the book six months ago, to try as in a, one of the therapeutic modules. And she said it was unbelievable what started to happen, that the women started to write themselves letters from their soldiers who had raped them. And and by the morning she woke up, and when she came to work, her office had a pile of letters in front of her door. And she said it began this process where they began to have agency over their life. And one of the things we've really grappled with, the City of Joy, because... Um, it's a very Christian country, is this kind of mandate that sometimes gets put on survivors to forgive their perpetrators. You must forgive, you must forgive, you must forgive, you must forgive. Which for me just feels like an intolerable um, demand and burden. I want to say this outright. Um, The burden of forgiveness is not on the victim ever. It's just not on the victim. And I have a a very um, dubious relationship with forgiveness. I I don't really know what it is. Uh, It feels very religious, it feels imposed, it often feels very inorganic. What I believe in is the alchemy of the apology. And what I mean by that is this. When a person goes through a genuine apology process, when they detail an account of their deeds, when they show you that they have investigated their early days and their self and their culture to understand what brought them to do what they did, when they Feel the impact it has had on you and let that impact in so that you know that they feel you. When they then take complete responsibility for what they've done and they make amends, something happens inside you. The tentacles of bitterness, the tentacles of rancor, the tenderness of hatred, they release organically. It happens. You don't have to do anything. And to me, that's the closest we get to forgiveness, right? Um, I look at people like Al Franken, and I look at people in our culture who have been called out, and sometimes I think it it was really not that hard. You needed to sit down and go through a process where you reckoned with what you had done, where you looked at what in me, what in my upbringing, what in my childhood, what in the culture of patriarchy taught me to be like this, and then what did I do? What were the specifics? Let me go through my whole life and write down, how many times did I do that to women as a result of what I have been through? And how did that impact women? What did they feel when I did that? Made jokes or grabbed them or groped them. How did they feel? Let me go in to see how she feels. And then let me take responsibility for that. Had Al Franken done that, had, I can go down the list, we would have been more than merciful towards Al Franken. We would have released... What we feel, but we're still left with an uncertainty. We're still left with doubts, even though we love Al Franken's politics. There's still some part of us that can't fully let go. I, every every so called apology I've read by someone accused ends up being poor me, look what's been done to my career. It wasn't that bad. How could I have been so attacked? I was given no chance to defend myself. We can go down the list, but there's no evidence that there is concern for their victim. Evidence that something... And actually, we have to teach this. We have to teach this. We have to create pathways so that people be- can begin to find themselves into those pathways so that healing can occur. And I think, really, this is the crucial moment we are at. We, if we do not find these pathways, I'm sorry, I am older now. I have been doing this work every day for 22 years. We will be here adamantum. And it is not the way we want to go because more and more and more and more and more and more women will be radically abused, their life force is diminished, their imaginations dim, their intuitions cast off, and their power erased. If we need anything right now, it is the power, intuition, and life force of women. That is what we need in this culture, in this world. And so this process has to somehow find its way into our world so that men can go through a necessary process and then women can be healed by their process and healed by their apology and their atonement and, 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 and we can move on to the next layer of consciousness, which is begging to be born.
2: <laughs> and
3: this, again, is really what
2: um, you've taken us around the corner Around a very important quarter in your thinking and in your laying out of the tenets of apology. So I want to combine a set of questions that you have. I should note that virtually on every single card I've ever seen, the first or the last thing it says is thank you for your incredible work. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you, thank you all so much. So,
2: so I guess picking up on what you just said, and it's especially important in a university setting, how many people here are students now? Yeah, so when we're in a setting with all of these students, what, you know, you you just talked about your hopes and your dreams in some sense for the book and for this project. Can you say anything more about what you would would encourage students now to do? Obviously, you know that debates about consent have been roiling on campuses. You know that the conversations that take place... (coughs) among groups of men tend to be quite different than among groups of women. And then there's a question, of course, about where gender non-binary people, which is a growing group of people on, on campuses and elsewhere, um, uh, where where that group has these conversations as well, especially since, at least from our own data, that is a group that is, um, has significantly higher rates of yes, vulnerability absolutely. than other men or women to sexual violence. But can you take us a little bit of a next step with what the students in
1: the room might do, how they might take this forward? You know, I so believe in storytelling. I so believe in it more than anything in the world. I think it is what keeps the world moving forward is how we tell stories and how we listen to stories. And I think one of the things that happens between people is we make so many assumptions about each other. Where we come from, what our values are, what we share, who we are, and usually they're completely insane, and they're completely not connected to <laughs> who people are. And then we find out years later, "Oh no, I felt like this when you touched me. I did this when you touched me." You know I I, mean, I think all, I, I sometimes think all bad sex is predicated on bad communication, right? And it, it, and it really begins early on when we don't teach our children what sexuality is. And what sex is, right? We pretend it's not going to happen, even though they've been having sex for years, right? Um, And I think part of what I would say, if I were young now or younger, is I think talk to whoever you're involved with. Man, woman, trans, they, everybody has a story. Everybody has trauma. Everybody has a wound, right? And so some people, with their wound, come at you. Some people with their wound withdraw. Some people with their wound have learned how to strategize and play games. Some people have used their wound to work magic on you. But what what I don't see people doing is asking each other questions. How do you like to be touched? What is sex for you? What do you feel when you're naked? Do you like your body? Do you like parts of your body being touched and other parts not being touched? Are there parts of your body that feel wounded, and when I get near it, you want to push me away? Do you want to push me away in general? Is intimacy scary to you? I would make lists of questions before I even touched anybody, just to know them, just to know where they're from, just to know their history, just to know what brought them to this very moment when they're with you. Because I think so often, we're misreading each other. We're miscuing each other. Somebody's saying no, and that person's reading yes. Somebody's reading, you know, come on, baby, and that person's going, oh, they don't like me. We're, we're, we're not picking up the right cues because often our, our cue systems are damaged, right? They're not sending out the right messages. And, and the other thing I just feel really strongly about is that everybody needs to feel autonomy and the right to their own body. And so many of us have grown up where we've been invaded, where we've been touched, where we've been hurt, where we've been violated, that we've lost that autonomy, right? We don't feel we have agency over these bodies. We don't feel we have the right to say no, and we don't feel we have the right to ask for what we want, right? If if you're touching me there, that, that actually doesn't feel good like that. If you slowed it down, if you moved it here, that would, we don't even feel the right to say that. It's embarrassing, we're ashamed. To actually say to you what my body likes, that's a terrifying experience. When in fact, that's exactly the exchange we should be making with each other. So I think having bodily autonomy and a right to your body and a sense of the worthiness of your body and the genius and the beauty of your body is critical, just critical. And then being able to share what your dream is of how your body gets touched. What's your dream? You know, when I did the vagina monologues, I interviewed hundreds of women before I wrote the fictional piece. I would say nine out of 10 women, when I said to them, what would your vagina say if it could talk? Two words, slow, doubt. And I would say, how many of you have said that to the person you're with? None, none. So here's what happens. We start with bad sex. We believe that's what sex is and we end up in miserable sex for eternity, right? (laughs) This is why we're all so messed up. We're having terrible sex, right? I, I really believe that. We're not getting our needs fulfilled. We're going, all right, when's he done? When's she done? All right, I'm fine. Instead of going, you know what? This could be a lot better. We could actually make this work for both of us. You could tell me what's good for you, and I could tell you what's good for me, and we could actually play, and we could do things, and we could experiment. And I think that's what, commun- that's what storytelling is. That's what storytelling is. Imagine I have a body. This is what my body likes. You can third person it. You can separate it from self and tell the story. But I think those are critical things. Critical things. I want to
2: point out three things about what you just said. Um, and I... I'm really hopeful that one of my colleagues was taking down that list, so we will add it to the Sexual Respect website, which I know all of the students in the room have visited or will soon visit. That is where you can find all resources at Columbia related to sexual respect and gender-based misconduct. So please, if you haven't already been there, go there, and you will also go there as part of the Sexual Respect and Community Citizenship Initiative. But here are three thoughts I have about what what you just said. Um, One... (coughs) The the first bunch of your sentences were about five words. So when you really think about what is, when each of us thinks about what is so challenging about doing this work and having these communications, these are not paragraphs, right? These are words to get out, and so what it tells us is that we're wrestling with a much deeper piece you're talking about, which is the shame, or the, ugh, that's so uncomfortable, or whatever it might be that makes it so hard to get the words out. It's not the words themselves. Um, A second uh, observation I have about the questions is that I actually would encourage each of us to ask those questions of ourselves, right? Because you you talked about them at first and then you moved to the self. You talked about them at first because we often talk about Kusan, right? How do we communicate with the other person? How do we ask the other person about what they want? And one of the things that I have seen in the work that I've done in Compia for a number of years now related to sexual respect and gender-based misconduct is that part of the gap is in people knowing what they want and being able to have that conversation with self. And one of the interesting questions, or I guess points of the areas of encouragement I would say is finding ways to have that conversation with yourself and finding the ways, even if they're uncomfortable, to have a conversation with other people, not about what other people want, but about what you want. And that's where your third key point, to me, came in, comes in, which is that third person in it, right? And yeah, I don't want to have the conversation about yourself, because that was just a step too far. The idea of having a conversation in the third person, it's certainly, it's something that we do in She the really law likes,
1: law. she feels good about this. Yeah, <laughs> you know well, it's the problem. Yeah, exactly. It's the
2: friends. This is my vagina speaking, rather than me speaking about it. I mean, it goes both places. Uh, so there, there are so many questions in probably, I don't know, four or five minutes. Okay. So, <laughs>
1: I'll try for three, but cool. they just can't
2: take to The last one is short. Uh, there's so, and each question I'm going to compliment you for those people who gave them, who, who've written them down. There. They're all wonderful and deeply thoughtful and Hopefully, we'll get more chance to talk during the reception. Uh, there is a question that is, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of. When do we stop doing all the work, no. bearing the entire weight, the burden of someone else's actions? How,
1: how do you think about that? <laughs> when men start doing their share. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's the answer. I mean, look, we can just stop doing the work now, and um, in in fact, it's like. Let me be clear, I didn't feel like this book was work. I felt like this book is a part of an evolutionary process that we're in since we have been struck by racist patriarchy. We are in a racist patriarchy state that we are trying to emerge from. It's only 16,000 years old, patriarchy. (laughs) I think slavery goes on, I don't know, probably before that. But 16,000 years is not a long time if you think about 200,000 years. There was time before patriarchy, and there's going to be time after it, right? To me, it's what we're trying to do to evolve our consciousness. And yes, it means that right now, we're, half of us are doing a lot of the work, right? I really do believe deep in my soul, and I'm going to stay here until I am moved to the grave, that there's gonna come the moment when the brave 10% of men, because Castro said we only need 10% for a revolution, when the brave 10% go, it's time, we're stepping forward. We're gonna bust out of the, we're busting out of the mail code. As Tony Porter, my friend says, we're busting out of the mailbox and mailbox and we're gonna come forward now to meet you to birth the new world. I do believe that moment's coming. And I am trying to lay every bit of groundwork, energy, and positivity I can so that that moment will step into being. Because here's the deal. If it doesn't happen, human beings are going to become extinct. It's not a question anymore. The Amazon is burning. The glaciers are melting. We have more hate. We have more strongmen. We have more fascists. We have more darkness in this world than in my lifetime if the men do not come forward now to step up to the next evolutionary leap of consciousness, we will perish. We will perish. It's not a question. So I believe people have to be pushed to the wall. We are at the wall. You know, there is no, there's not much more further we can push it. I mean, if you look at the Bahamas today, it was described as catastrophic, right? End of the world, okay? This is where we are. So we all have to now rise. We all have to work. We all have to work. It's not a question now. We have to put aside anything that is keeping us back from the human evolutionary purpose of surviving and keeping life alive. Our careers don't matter. Money doesn't matter. Our, 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 our legacy doesn't matter. None of it matters. We have to put that on hold now and fight with every inch of us for life on this planet. It's that serious. And part of what the mechanism of patriarchy does is it disguises it. It makes it seem like it's not that bad. It shoves it around. It's that bad. It's that bad. And it can be that good. If all of us make that decision. So, so I'll ask you a
2: last question that... In a way, it picks up on what you've just said and and has to address some of the other questions that you've posed, which is, you know, as you talk, there there is a sense on the one hand that, you know, the moment that any of us gets out of our seats here, we have to run and do and do because there's so much that is challenging in the world. And we can only do our piece, but we have to do our piece with urgency. with the kind of commitment, with the kind of eyes on what could be at the same time as reality, seeing the reality in front of us. So, the, the last two questions are, um, where does sleep come into this? <laughs> and, and, and somebody asked, so how do you sleep? Can you, do you sleep better now after writing this book? <clears throat> you can answer us personally or not as you'd like. And the second question really, Related piece comes out of the ideas that I've read a lot about the city of joy, right? Where, where we exist in the devastating violence in so many different ways that you're talking about in a, you know, in a, in a world where there's not a person who can't say they've been traumatized mm-hmm. in one way or another. Yet, joy is the name of that city, and when you talk about it, and looking at you smile, now, right? There's, there's the
0: joy in it. So, so sleep
1: and joy. Mm-hmm.
0: Sounds good. Um,
1: (laughs) I want to say a couple of things. I'm so glad you asked me that question. Um, I really have this feeling lately, and I got a really clear vision this weekend about something. Um, The forces of darkness, the forces of patriarchy, the forces of fascism, the forces of hate, that seem to be encroaching and getting deeper and deeper, we can't beat them on their terms. We can't beat them on their terms. We don't have the guns. We don't have the hate. We don't, we'll never hate like that. We'll never, we'll never, we'll never be cruel like that. What we have is our light. What we have is our love. What we have is our force. What we have is our joy. What we have is our vitality. What we have is our fierceness and commitment to the planet, to the earth, to each other. And I got this vision this weekend, and all it said was raise. Vibration. Raise the vibration. So I've been trying to think what does that mean to raise the vibration? We're in their vibration right now, right? We're in their vibration. We're operating within their network. We've got to raise the vibration. We've got to bring out our lovingness, our kindness, our willingness to say, if I have privilege, if I have entitlement, come next to me. Share this. I bring this to you. If I have If if someone's alone, how do I... I had a dream last night that there was just this man lying in the middle of the road and he was just... his, His ankles were swollen and everyone was walking past and I just sat down with him and I just picked him up and I held him and he looked at me and he just started weeping. We have to pick up the people who are fallen. We have to love the people who are broken. We have to raise our vibration so everyone around us gets raised up into their vibration so we can begin to have the imagination and the vision and the solidarity to move us out of this darkness. And that, whatever raise the vibration means for you, figure it out. Mm -hmm. What do you have to do to raise your vibration? Is it stop watching the news and stop talking about the horrible things every minute and start talking about the wondrous things that are happening. I was down in Brownsville, Texas going from shelter to shelter, meeting such amazing people, young lawyers, Latina lawyers, who were there case after case making Sophie's choice about which immigrant child they were going to save and which they were going to let perish. Right? I went from shelter to shelter of kind people who would open their houses and were taking an immigrant after immigrant, feeding them and nurturing them and rubbing their feet. Those are the people we need to be focusing on so we improve our vibration. So we raise up our vitality. We don't need to give this predator-in-chief any more attention. We don't need to talk his name. I have tried to never mention his name. (laughs) Mention the name of our brothers and sisters who are doing the real work to to be against racism who are doing the real work to stop police brutality, who are doing the real work to reach out to all these beautiful migrants who are fleeing such desperate situations and welcoming them in and become one of those people and raise the vibration. Because I really believe we can do it. It's in us. We have that vibration. It's just a question of whether we want to activate it and move towards life or we want to give up and move towards death. It's that simple. Thank you.
2: about talking about this on a medical center, on a health sciences Mm -hmm. campus, where the work of change and the work of healing and the work of unraveling the mysteries of life and and finding ways to enhance the the, the experience of of all of us uh, takes the imagination. It takes the kind of imagination and the willingness to step out of what we know and what we always do, the kind of work that you did, the apology, the kind of work that the Division of Maritime Medicine does. So I want to thank you, Eve, for sharing your insights with us, your joy, you didn't tell us about sleep, but that's okay, we can talk about it. Your your joy, your pain, and your just profound imagination and inspiration that I know each of us will... Take with us. I want to thank everybody
1: here. Thank you all. You've been so lucky Really. Thank you.